0: Welcome to episode 28, The Truth About the Federal Reserve, The Results. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on Facebook or Twitter and the topics of tariffs, social security, birthright citizenship, the government shutdown, or the Federal Reserve comes up, please share the TruthQuest episode with them. Or if you come across an article related to one of the episodes on a website that allows comments, cut and paste the URL of the episode right into the comment box. Also, if you are listening on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. If you are feeling generous, please consider supporting the show financially. All donations will be used to expand the reach of the show. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for the link to the patronage page. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, or Podbean. You can also listen to the episodes on the new TruthQuest Podcast YouTube channel. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. In the previous episode, number 27, The Truth About the Federal Reserve, An Introduction, I laid the groundwork for this episode. So now that you know what the Fed is, why it was created, and how it creates money, Let's look at the results of the last hundred plus years since this monstrosity was created. If you have listened to any number of TruthQuest podcast episodes, you know where I like to start my quest for truth, either in the Bible or the Constitution, depending on the topic. When Alexander Hamilton proposed the First Bank of the United States, Thomas Jefferson argued that it was unconstitutional. Hamilton agreed that it was not an enumerated power in the Constitution, however, it was implied given all the charges the federal government was given in the Constitution. Excuse me while I digress for a minute, but the Constitution doesn't imply anything. It says what it says, and it means what it says. You do not have to interpret it or try to determine what is implied. Like Peter Schiff is fond of saying, the Constitution is not written in Chinese. It does not need to be interpreted. Back on track. Whereas Hamilton argued that debt was a blessing as long as it was not excessive, Jefferson said, quote, A private central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army. We must not let our rulers load us with perpetual debt. End quote. No truer words were ever spoken. Let me explain. When it comes to the Federal Reserve, you probably will not be surprised to find out that the power to issue fiat money, or paper money, is not enumerated into in, the federal government in the Constitution. As a matter of fact, it is prohibited. Additionally, in Article 1, Section 10, the states are specifically prohibited from doing anything monetarily other than gold and silver. It reads in part, no state shall coin money, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. In Article 1, Section 8, it reads, Congress shall have the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States, to coin money, and to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. So notice the words used. Coin money, not print money, not bills of credit, not IOUs or fiat money. All of those were prohibited. Add to this the Tenth Amendment's language about specifically prohibited to the states. There is no doubt that fiat money is unconstitutional. Individuals and private institutions such as banks and companies can issue IOUs and hope that the public will use them as money, but the government at any level is clearly prohibited from doing so. Every member of Congress has taken an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, and yet this charade continues, decade after decade. Something else that may surprise you is the fact that the Constitution did not define the U.S. dollar. The Coinage Act of 1792 stated, the dollar or unit shall be of the value of a Spanish mill dollar as the same is now current, to wit three hundred and seventy one and one quarter grains of silver. In other words, the dollar is a silver coin containing three hundred and seventy one and one quarter grains, or .773 ounces. For those of you who are as anal as me, that equates to around twelve dollars today. By the way, the coinage act was never repealed. If you read the founders and the constitutional ratifying debates, the hatred of paper money is clear. The Articles of Confederation contain the following provision, quote, the legislature of the United States shall have the power to borrow money and emit bills of credit, end quote. During the Constitutional Convention, the last five words, and emit bills of credit, were overwhelmingly voted out. Why was that? Because in colonial America, fiat money was used. Legal tender laws were passed which forced people to use the paper money, just like in modern-day America, where legal tender laws force us to use these Federal Reserve notes we find in our pockets. The result was rampant inflation. So the colonists switched back to using French, Dutch, and English gold coins in their commerce, and things settled down economically. Unfortunately, this monetary stability came to a halt when the colonists revolted against Britain, in 1775, the money supply was around 12 million dollars. Then the Continental Congress began expanding the federal money supply in order to fund the war. Plus 2 million, plus 1 million, plus 3 million, plus 19 million, all of that in 1776. In 1777, they expanded it by 13 million. In 1778, they expanded it by 64 million. Then 125 million in 1779. That's $227 million in five years, a 2,000% increase in the money supply. The Continental Army even issued certificates in order to buy supplies. Guess what happened? Inflation. The Continental was valued at $1 in gold in 1775. In 1778, it was exchanged for 25 cents. In 1779, it was valued at less than a penny and ceased being used as money. Thus, the phrase, not worth a continental. Following the war, the economy settled down and from 1793 to 1808 experienced unparalleled prosperity and business expansion. Exports of 19 million in 1798 increased to 93 million by 1801. The federal deficit was 28% of expenditures in 1792, 21% in 1795, and they had a surplus in 1802. Quite remarkable. Given that we essentially live in a post-constitutional era, the argument I just laid out that the Fed is unconstitutional will fall on deaf ears for the most part. Let's evaluate the Fed's actual record over the last 100 plus years of existence and see if we can build a persuasive case against it. So the results. I have mentioned inflation a few times. I don't want to assume that how this occurs is obvious, so let's examine how the Fed creates inflation. First of all, you need to understand that inflation is a hidden tax. If you put $10,000 in a bank 10 years ago, earning less than 3%, the purchasing power of those dollars is less today than it was when you made the deposit, meaning you can buy less stuff with those dollars than you could previously. So how does that happen? Well, each time a new dollar is created by the treasury and it begins circulating in the economy, the purchasing power of dollars already in circulation diminishes. Why is that? because there are more dollars chasing the same goods and services. If the price of a specific item or commodity goes up, it's the result of supply and demand. However, if the general price levels of everything is going up, as they have in the United States for decades, the central bank is at fault. Ron Paul explains it this way. When the Fed acts to increase the money supply, well-to-do investors and other crony capitalists are the first recipients of the new money. These economic elites enjoy an increase in purchasing power before the Fed's inflationary policies lead to mass price increases. This gives them a boost in their standard of living. By the time the increased money supply trickles down to middle and working class Americans, the economy is already beset by inflation. So most average Americans see their standard of living decline as a result of the Fed engendered money supply increases. Mises.org explains, So, If the chronic inflation undergone by Americans and in almost every other country is caused by the continuing creation of new money, and if each country's government's central bank is the sole monopoly source and creator of all money, who then is responsible for the plight of inflation? Who except the very institution that is solely empowered to create money, that is the Fed, and the Bank of England, and the Bank of Italy, and other central banks itself? Tom Woods explains it this way, governments that hold a monopoly on the issuance of money, have had a bad habit of debasing and destroying that money, a habit whose ill effects have been all the greater as government has moved away from precious metal money and into paper money whose value they can more readily manipulate. In short, the value of the dollar decreases as the amount of dollars in circulation continues to increase. Number two, what about the impact on savers and people on fixed income? How does the Fed impact them? An average retiree should be able to accumulate money over their working careers and park those dollars in conservative, stable, income-generating investments and live off the interest. Instead, because of reckless manipulation of interest rates by the Fed, holding rates near zero for almost a decade, retirees either need to work longer or invest their money in riskier investments. So instead of parking their money in a CD and earning a modest 4 or 5% a year, They are forced to chase yield in the stock market and risk losing their nest egg. It is a wealth transfer from savers to the banking community. Think about it. Hundreds of billions of dollars in interest is no longer paid to these savers. Those dollars stay on the bank's balance sheet as retained earnings and or allocated to dividends and stock buybacks. Remember, the Fed was created to benefit the banking system creating a government sanctioned government enforced cartel. So everything the Fed does tends to benefit that cartel. Members of this cartel are large investment are large investors, hedge funds, institutional investors, money center banks, they can borrow huge sums of money at very low interest rates, invest it in the stock market, buy bonds, loan it out, and profit. Number three, the Fed policies cause malinvestment. Now this may be a new term for some of you as it was for me several years ago, so let me explain. Asset bubbles cannot form without loose monetary policies by central banks that fund them. So in a free market, if an asset or or an asset class begins to balloon, the market would stop it as if more people would enter that arena of the economy, thus lowering the costs. Manipulated low interest rates send the wrong signals to entrepreneurs and business owners. They induce people to acquire assets that they might not otherwise in an unmolested monetary environment. They cause overinvestment and malinvestment as resources are misallocated. So in order to see a real-life example of malinvestment, consider the 2008 housing bubble. Artificially low interest rates steered builders into building more and more homes because the money to buy them was so cheap. Because the money was so cheap and the restrictions on getting a loan so lax, again due to more government manipulation of the market, demand for housing was high. Without Fed intervention or manipulation, the free market would have put an end to the rising housing bubble in no time. Given the increased demand for loans, banks would have seen their supply of loanable money depleted. They would then have raised interest rates to take advantage of the high demand and lower supply of loanable funds. The higher rates would have discouraged some potential buyers from buying today and encouraged them to save instead. Those increased savings would then be made available as loanable funds and or as down payments on the eventual house purchase. Number four, what about bailouts? The bust or bankruptcy is a necessary stage to rectify malinvestment. Failing firms need to be allowed to go bankrupt. The recession period is used to re-establish the normal pattern of commerce that got out of whack during the boom. Tom Woods puts it this way, Bankruptcy proceedings permit new owners to take over the assets of failing firms and either conduct these firms according to a different business model, turn the assets, if possible, towards the production of different goods, or simply sell off the assets and compensate as many creditors as can be accommodated. So not only do government bailouts interfere with the free market's market-cleansing mechanism of bankruptcy and recessions, but they fleece taxpayers. You can go all the way back to to the bailouts of the railroad companies in the 19th century. Lockheed in the 1970s, New York City in 1975, Chrysler in 78, First Pennsylvania Bank of Philadelphia in 79, Continental Illinois in 1982, Commonwealth Bank of Detroit in 84, and of course the two big-to-fail bailouts of selected insurance companies, banks, and investment banks during the massive 2008 subprime meltdown. Not to worry. These bailouts guarantee that the Federal Reserve System fulfilled its purpose of making sure that banks kept getting their interests with the federal government loan guarantees and lines of credit of the FDIC. The politicians didn't want the crisis to go away, so they exaggerated catastrophic warnings about the pending economic collapse and public safety to justify their legalized plunder of the public coffers to benefit the banking system. If you look back at the bailouts, you will note that the federal government refused to bail out a number of smaller banks. Why would they do that? Because as we discussed in episode 27, one of the objectives of the establishment of the Fed was less competition. Again, mission accomplished. I've heard it said, the toughest regulator which shows no mercy and bails out no one is known as the free market. That's the only regulator necessary for the economy. Number five. How has the Fed performed? Well, here is the Fed's scorecard 100-plus years after its creation. It oversaw the crashes of 1921, 1929, the Great Depression, the recessions of 1953, 57, 1969, 75, 81, 2008, and the inevitable recession facing America today. The Fed resided over stock market Black Monday in 1987, and 1,000% inflation that has destroyed 95% of the dollar's purchasing power. Consider this. In 1990, $10,000 annual income was required to purchase the same stuff that only took $1,000 annual income in 1914. Remember, inflation is a hidden tax. It's wealth confiscation. Christina Romer, who was Obama's chairman of Economic Advisors, found that recessions were not more frequent in the pre-Fed period, yet we do nothing about it. The bottom line is the Federal Reserve has been an unmitigated success by the goals set out at Jekyll Island. However, it has been an absolute failure based on the goals it lays out for the public. Has the Fed accomplished its stated mandates, maximum employment, and stable prices? Absolutely not. Clearly, I am of the opinion that the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Here's why. What do all the following things have in common? Lower savings rates lower real real wage rates, lower standard of living, lower net worth, lower home ownership, higher foreclosure rates, more two-income households, more personal debt, more workers over 65 years old, higher age to purchase first home, higher or same poverty rates, more personal bankruptcies, higher inflation. I would argue that most of these economic and monetary effects are caused directly or indirectly by the actions of the Federal Reserve. What about calls to abolish the Fed? Why would we do that? Well, here's the case laid out by Edward Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, a must-read book about the Federal Reserve. He has eight points. Number one, it's unconstitutional. Number two, it is incapable of accomplishing its stated objectives. Number three, it is a cartel operating against the public's interest. Number four, it is the supreme instrument of usury. Number five, it generates our most unfair tax, inflation. Number six, it encourages war. Number seven, it just destabilizes the economy. And number eight is an instrument of totalitarianism. So follow his logic. Government debt leads to fiat money. Fiat money leads to inflation. Inflation damages the economy by killing your purchasing power and killing your ability to save for the future. A damaged economy leads to impoverished people. Impoverished people offers an excuse for more government power and control, and more power, more government power and control leads to totalitarianism. So what are we up against when it comes to abolishing or even reeling in the Fed? Well, it's called the welfare and the warfare state. Why would Congress do anything about the Fed? It's their personal printing press and allows them to avoid raising taxes to pay for all their shit. Without the Fed, the federal government would be far less threatening. Without the ability to print money, they would have to be disciplined. The left would lose their welfare state and the right would lose the warfare state unless the public chose to finance them with higher taxes. So with all this gloom and doom, what's the alternative? It's actually very simple. We could revert back to a hard money, gold standard monetary policy that takes the power away from politicians. Seriously, folks, banking is not difficult. One person saves. The savings is housed in the bank. Those funds are now available to loan to other customers with the depositor's permission. The bank earns interest on the loan and shares a portion of it with the depositor. You know, we need to encourage savings, which is the opposite of what is going on today. The more money saved, the lower the interest rates. As savings rates increase, consumption decreases, signaling to the market that there might be a, this might be a good time to tackle longer term or larger scale projects. Back to the point that banking is not difficult. The states can charter banks and simply enforce contract law. That's all that is really needed. Currently, banks are full of employees responsible for complying with unnecessary government regulations. Those jobs go away, and the cost of running a bank goes down dramatically, creating a market opportunity for new banks to open their doors. Increased competition benefits the consumer, the taxpayer. The bottom line is the free market can take care of itself. It does not need a monetary helicopter parent trying to call the shots. While we're on the subject of an alternative, simpler monetary system, I want to take a brief moment to talk to you about the gold standard. Hopefully you understand the idea that paper money or electronic money created by the Fed has no intrinsic value. It is only valuable because the unconstitutional legal tender laws force us to accept them as payment. So what does the gold standard mean? It's also called hard money. It's the idea that you have physical precious metals, usually gold or silver, sitting in a vault. You issue certificates that essentially allow the holder to turn it in for physical gold or silver as denominated on the certificate. In practicality, the certificates would circulate in the economy and never be redeemed. The reason hard money solution is desirable is because precious metals have intrinsic value. That's been the case for thousands of years. They are rare, they have industrial uses, etc., The likelihood of a rapid expansion in the money supply like the Fed currently does with with keystrokes is zero since gold and silver must be mined. The bottom line is the gold standard or hard money standard provides stability and restrains the government from inflating the money supply and causing inflation and all the other things mentioned earlier. The whole purpose of getting rid of gold was to have the ability to inflate money without restraint and to bail out those that should go bankrupt. The post-1971 money has been credit-based, not gold-based. The supply of gold is limited. The supply of credit is not. Most important, gold-backed money is impossible for politicians to create. Credit is not. Gold maintains stable prices. In 1913, the average annual wage was $633 a year. Gold was $20.67 an ounce. So therefore, the average wage was about 31 ounces per year. In 1990, the average annual wage was a little bit over $20,000 a year. Gold was just under $400 an ounce. The average wage was 53 ounces of gold per year. Okay, so that's a wage increase of 3,200%. Gold increased by 73%, so that's a modest 1% a year. Purchasing power was up slightly over those 70 years, due largely to productivity gains. Today, the average annual wage is in the neighborhood of $40,000 a year. Gold is around $1,250 an ounce. That's about 32 ounces per year earned. That's lower than the rate in 1913. Is the average wage earner any better off with a $40,000 than the $20,000 or the $633 a year? Nope. We are simply keeping up with inflation. Inflation caused by the manipulation of our money supply by the central banks. Alan Greenspan, prior to becoming Federal Reserve Chairman in 1987, was an ardent supporter of the gold standard. Below are a few quotes by Greenspan explaining his rationale and reinforcing the argument for the gold standard. He said, there is widespread view that the 19th century gold standard didn't work. I think that's like wearing the wrong size shoes and saying the shoes are uncomfortable. It wasn't the gold standard that failed, it was politics. We would never have reached this position of extreme indebtedness were we on the gold standard, because the gold standard is the way to of ensuring that fiscal policy never gets out of line. He also said, Government deficit spending under the gold standard is severely limited, but the abandonment of the gold standard made it possible for government to use the banking system as a means to an unlimited expansion of credit. The law of supply and demand is not to be conned as the supply of money increases. Prices must eventually rise. He also said, Under a gold standard, the amount of credit that an economy can support is determined by the economy's tangible assets. But government bonds are not backed by tangible wealth, only by the government's promise to pay out a future revenue. And finally, he said, deficit spending is simply a scheme for the confiscation of wealth. Gold stands in the way of this insidious process. It stands as a protector of property rights. If one grasps this, one has no difficulty in understanding the status antagonism towards the gold standard. Author Edwin Griffin, I mentioned earlier, put it this way. Whenever the government sets out to manipulate the money supply, the result is inflation, economic chaos, and political upheaval. By contrast, when government is limited in its monetary power to only the maintenance of honest weights and measures of precious metals, the result is price stability, economic prosperity, and political tranquility. Which would you prefer? Inflation, economic chaos, and political upheaval? Or price stability, economic prosperity, and political tranquility? I want to end this episode with a side by side comparison of how a Fedless monetary system would operate versus our current system. It will serve as a good summary for our discussions over the last two episodes. So with the Federal Reserve, we have an unconstitutional government-granted monopoly on the creation of money. Without the Federal Reserve, we have no monopoly. We have billions of transactions that determine the monetary policy and interest rates. With the Federal Reserve, we have recessions and depressions that linger for years as the Fed's market manipulation interferes with the free market principles, too big to fail, zero interest rates. Without the Fed, We have recessions and depressions that self-correct with liquidation of bankrupt companies and industries. With the Fed, we have arbitrarily suppressed interest rates that discourage savings, hurts those on a fixed income, the poor, and savers. These artificial rates send the wrong signals to entrepreneurs to borrow at lower rates during a time when the economy may not support their expansion. That's the malinvestment we discussed. Without the Federal Reserve, Interest rates are determined in the marketplace comprised of billions of independent, voluntary transactions between millions of producers, consumers, workers, savers, investors, entrepreneurs, and even speculators who return to normal rates and encourage and reward savings. A large supply of savings would lower the interest rates offered by banks competing to make those loans. These organically low rates send a correct signal to entrepreneurs to borrow and invest in expansion with the fed we have economic booms and busts without the fed we typically would experience a localized and or sector specific business fluctuations no economy-wide booms and busts with the fed we have artificially inflated stock market characterized by stock buybacks and dividend increases instead of productivity increases without the fed the stock market is rewarded for future growth productivity and innovation With the Fed, lending is suppressed. Why loan money at artificially low rates? Instead, institutions seek higher yields and take more risk than otherwise necessary by taking the cheap money from the Fed and investing it in the stock market or other riskier vehicles. Without the Fed, savings are used to finance business expansion. Depositors restrict current consumption, i.e. save, and business expands using the savings which is loaned to them. Lower consumption turns into more savings. Those saved dollars are then loaned out. With the Fed, we have central planning and crony capitalism. Without the Fed, we have free market capitalism. With the Fed, we have fiat money, no gold standard, unlimited credit expansion created out of thin air, no precious metal backing, no backing at all except the government's force, legal tender laws. Without the Fed, we could have sound money, hard money possibly backed by gold and or silver, both of which are scarce, limited, and cannot be created out of thin air. They must be discovered, mined, and minted. They're rare, durable, portable, and divisible. With the Fed, we have bailouts. Without the Fed, we have bankruptcy. With the Fed, we have inflation, resulting from the increase in the money supply. Without the Fed, it is very difficult to increase the supply of gold and or silver. Therefore, inflation is severely limited. And finally, with the Fed, we have a welfare and warfare state that is fully funded. Without the Fed, neither would be financed to the insane levels they are currently unless the voters approve the spending via higher taxes. So I'll leave you with this thought. With the Fed, inflation, economic chaos, and political upheaval. Without the Fed, price stability, economic prosperity, and political tranquility. Please join the conversation at facebook.com forward slash truth podcast.